ask yourself, why is it that I do what I do? Right? What is it that I value and why? Why do I prioritize things a certain way? If you can honestly define your audience for why you get out of bed each and every day, you can break through the noise and you can compartmentalize the naysayers. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. I'm so excited to introduce the first fighter pilot we've had on our podcast, Colonel Nicole Melikowski. See, among the first group of women allowed to fly a modern fighter plane and was recognized for accomplishments in the National Women's Hall of Fame in 2019. With over 21 years of experience in the United States Air Force, including 188 hours in combat and more than 2,300 log flight hours, she built an incredibly successful military career as a leader, an officer, and a fighter pilot. But in her life, she has built two careers one in the United States Air Force and one in advocacy and government service after a tick bite forced her into medical retirement. Today, she's the commissioner of the President's Commission on White House Fellowship, a board member of the Lift Lyme Foundation, and a fierce advocate for individuals with tick-borne illnesses. Here's our conversation. Well, welcome, Nicole. Thanks for joining me this morning. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, we're very excited. You are our first fighter pilot to have in our podcast. And uh, for our listener who cannot see that you have a lot of this different, uh, what do you call that? It's like memorabilia. Memorabilia. <laughs> uh, that's uh, reflect uh, your service in the military. We thank you for your service. I thought it would be good for our listeners uh, to hear your background. You were competitively selected to fly combat aircraft. And then you were on adventures among the first group of women to fly modern fighter uh, aircraft. And can you tell us about what inspired you and who inspired you to be, be there, Rolf? Sure, yeah. I mean, I can remember the exact moment that I made the decision that, you know, I want to be a fighter pilot when I grow up. I was five years old. It was approximately 1979. So now I'm dating myself. And my family went to an air show. I think a lot of people across America, you know, the local airport brings the air show to town. Um, it's a very patriotic, feel-good, fun event. And I remember watching this fighter jet fly by really low across the runway. Uh, the jet was called the F-4 Phantom, which happened to have been the workhorse of the Vietnam War. But when it came by, um, it was really low. It was so loud. I had to cover my ears. I remember my chest rumbling, you know, just by the, the sound. I could smell the jet fuel. And I just started shaking with excitement. You know how like little, little kids get so excited, they just can't control their movement? That was me at that time. Um, and I remember thinking, uh, that's what I'm going to do someday. I want to be a fighter pilot. You combine that with, um, I grew up in a family that had a history of military service. So I knew going into the military, at least I was raised to know that it was honorable and noble and good. When you put that together with that fighter jet that flew by, at the age of five, I was sold. And no convincing you to do different things. No. But at the same time, when you were at that age, you know, women were not Correct. You know, allowed to do that. Like, how do you bridge that? 
Right. Well, you know, you are correct. In 1979, it was still against the law for women to fly fighter aircraft. And that law wouldn't change until I was in college in the early 90s. Um, and I remember as a young kid, you know, between the ages of like five and, you know, junior high, that didn't resonate with me, right? I didn't understand that. What do you mean? Congress has a law that says I can't follow and pursue my dream. It doesn't make sense to a little kid. Um, it wasn't really until junior high into high school that I realized, wait a minute, there's actually a law preventing me <laughs> from pursuing my dream of flying a plane. I mean, I don't know how gender has anything to do, you know, with flying and employing an aircraft. Um, and I stayed focused, though, on my goal through high school. I thought, well, if I can't fly fighter aircraft in the Air Force, at least I can still serve my country um, by flying transport or tanker aircraft. And so any kind of flying and any kind of service was better than none in my eyes. And so I forged ahead to the Air Force Academy for college. And as luck would have it, that law would change um, my sophomore year at the Air Force Academy. So there's a lot to be said for timing, luck, and circumstance in my case. Yeah, but it's interesting that you were, you know, knowing that your dream might not happen, but then you see there's different opportunity or different purpose for you to pursue that. Indeed. And I think for, you know, the foundational purpose, of course, I think was military service. I always had been, you know, like I said, I was raised to know that military service was a noble thing and a good thing, but it had always intrigued me. I remember going to the Veterans Day parades, et cetera, as a young kid and just watching people wearing the same uniform and marching behind the flag. And it may sound a little bit trite, but it's true. I mean, it was a very patriotic feeling in my heart. And I thought, I just, I want to serve my country. Oh, by the way, on a practical, from a practical perspective, it's a great career to have. A lot of benefits, travel the world, fly the world's amazing fighter aircraft. And in the early 40s, you can retire with a pension and health care for life. So there's a lot to love about military service. Yeah. And um, I think there's also the sense of a purpose as well, uh, being in the military. Absolutely. And being in the military at during the 90s throughout, you've seen so many cultural changes and even our society. Mm -hmm. um, and you have managed to create a successful path to force that changes. Can you help understand, uh, help us understand like how you go about that and how you manage to uh, come up very good at it? I just want to like reiterate to be clear that, you know, there were so many talented women who came before me that would have made amazing fighter pilots, but they weren't provided that opportunity. So in my story, I want people to understand, yes, while I did the work and achieved these things, that timing, luck and circumstance, you know, also played deeply into the doors that were open, you know, for me. Um, obviously, joining my first fighter squadron in the 1990s, um, let's just be honest, wasn't exactly the most enjoyable experience. Um, there was still a lot of resistance um, for some for women flying in fighters. You know, this idea that if, if we, quote unquote, let women become fighter pilots, it's somehow going to lower the standard. Or if we let, quote unquote, women become fighter pilots, that it's going to completely change, you know, the camaraderie and the brotherhood and the culture of the fighter squadron. And what we discovered over the last, you know, what, gosh, 20 plus years now, almost 30 years now, is that it's it's it didn't do any of those things, right? It added to the strengths and to the skills of a fighter squadron. Um, there were some extraordinary men in the 90s in my first squadron 
who were very, very supportive and helpful. And so to your point, I made a conscious decision to focus my time, effort, and energies with them and on you know, their inputs. Um, it would have been very easy, I think, to get distracted by the naysayers, those who are still chauvinistic or still living under you know, just older mindset. Um, but I told myself, instead of getting bogged down in the negative people and the naysayers, put your time and your energy and your focus on the ones that are helping you because there were plenty. I am definitely the product of a lot of investment by a lot of really strong men who believed in me um, and women, of course. So I focused on that. And then as I went through my career, I just kept reminding myself, you know, one, only I get to define success for myself. I think a lot of people go through life letting an organization or a team or a company define what success looks like for them. And I never fell prey to that. And I think one of the reasons I had such a very unique military career, very broad, if you will, which is non-standard, is because I didn't ever let big air force define what success looked like to me. I seized opportunities within it. And then the second thing I would remind myself um, when the times were hard, when maybe the, the chauvinism was a bit extreme at times, you know, I would go home like any person and I have feelings and there were times I cried myself to sleep over it. Um, and ultimately I would get myself out of those moments by reminding myself that this is my dream. This has been my dream since I was five years old. This doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. I'm not here to prove anything to anyone except myself. And so those were the kind of mindset, you know, mantras, if you will, that helped me through those tough times. And it shows your security in a way, in terms of who you are and help you keep yourself grounded that you don't worry about what other people measurement of yourself. How do you do that? I mean, you know, a lot of our... Mm -hmm you know, we tend to be rewarded by the external. So sometimes we look for external reward. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's human nature and I don't want to sit here and act like uh, I've never been hurt by somebody else or that I haven't felt, you know, bad about it. I have. Um, it's just that I've been able to find, I guess, you know, my way out of it. And I guess one of the best examples would be when I was actually a Thunderbird pilot. Um, I went to one of my very first air shows and I was talking right before I was going to fly, I was talking to um, four little girls, you know, about 10, 12 years old. We were having a great conversation. And, you know, they were looking at me as if I'd hung the moon. I was trying to live up to that standard. And in that conversation, a, a man walked in behind them and interrupted the conversation and basically said, women shouldn't be doing this. Don't talk to these young gals about a career like that. You don't really fly that plane on and on. And I kind of looked up at him and I will distinctly remember giving him the look like, dude, you know, like, why are you interrupting this, this moment? Like, what is so wrong with the five of us having this pleasant conversation and then you interrupting it? And that's the moment that I learned that some people can have a visceral reaction, right? To you, if you're different, if your idea is different, if your dream is different, if it goes against, you know, their preconceived notions or the status quo, because this man looked right at me right at me in front of these little girls. And he said, I hope you crash. I hope you crash. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the listeners are gasping too at this moment. But the point is this, in that very difficult moment, um, where these four little faces looked up at me, this guy's staring me down, I'm standing there. These words came into my head. You're not my audience. You're not my audience. 
And those words allowed me to realize that I could get blue in the face all day talking to this guy, justifying my qualifications, pull out my CV, my resume, you know, why I'm, why I'm a fighter pilot, etc. And it's not going to change his mind at all. And I think instinctually, we know when that's going to happen. My audience were those four little faces looking at me. So when you come across the naysayers, which may be your own self-doubt, right? Ask yourself, why is it that I do what I do? Right? What is it that I value and why? Why do I prioritize things a certain way? If you can honestly define your audience for why you get out of bed each and every day, you can break through the noise and you can compartmentalize the naysayers. Because there's no matter what you do, there's always that naysayer, mm-hmm. including yourself. You're right. <laughs> I kind of take it as a signal that I'm doing something cool or different or new if I got yeah. a couple of agitators out there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, through a lot of your, you know, adversity in the military, you overcome that. You also have uh, gone through uh, personal life adversity that probably kind of propel you to your next career. But uh, can you tell us more about that? Sure. You know, to your point, I was very lucky to have an extraordinary career. It was nearly 22 years active duty, nearly 26, if you include my time at the Air Force Academy. You know, I got to fly in three operational fighter squadrons. I commanded an F-15E fighter squadron. I was a Thunderbird pilot. I worked at the White House twice. I mean, I had all of these amazing experiences. I'd say these things for context in that I was mentally fit, physically fit, spiritually fit. My career was going great. And then all of a sudden, boom, in the blink of a bite, (laughs) I ended up losing everything. Um, I, three years ago, was medically retired from the career that I loved out of nowhere, unexpected, unwelcome, fully disruptive to my life. And in that moment, I lost my, you know, profession as an Air Force officer and my purpose there as service. Overnight, I lost my career as a pilot, a fighter pilot. You know, overnight, I lost my means for providing for my family. And it was a real, like, just horrific, terrible moment to go from this very independent type A person to completely bedridden 22 plus hours a day, unable to walk, talk, read or write and dependent on other people, you know, to go from this fighter pilot to being completely broken is one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through. And to your point, it was because of a tick bite. A tick bite is what completely broke me. Um, but for the last three years, I've, I've turned that around um, mm-hmm. into some national level patient advocacy work, um, which gives my life a new purpose. It's given my life a new target, if you will. It's given my life a new meaning. And I absolutely love what I do now. Yeah. So maybe for a lot of our listeners who, I mean, we hear a lot about uh, the Lyme disease and mm-hmm. sometimes you don't know the extent of how debilitating that is unless you know somebody close or yourself experience it. If you can tell us a little bit more about what that means. Sure, you bet. Thanks for the question. Um, I often use the term tick-borne illness when I'm discussing what happened to me because I got more than Lyme disease. It's important that listeners understand that ticks can carry a multitude of bacteria, parasites, and viruses. Um, we're discovering new ones, it seems, you know, every single year or two. Um, those are just the ones we know about. Lyme disease, of course, is the one that um, has the most 
I guess people are most familiar with that term. Um, it is the most diagnosed vector-borne disease in the United States. The CDC says 476,000, nearly 500,000 Americans a year are being diagnosed with Lyme. And the CDC also acknowledges that upwards of 20% of those can end up with what they call post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. In our community, it's sometimes referred to as chronic Lyme disease, et cetera. But the point is, is that upwards of 90,000 Americans a year are remaining chronically disabled and chronically ill from a single tick bite. Lyme disease, when we use that term, is specifically a, a bacteria and a strain called Borrelia burgdorferi. Borrelia is a kind of spirochetal bacteria, um, much performs in a lot of ways similar to syphilis, which a lot of people are more, I guess, familiar with too. Um, but there's many strains of Borrelia in the United States and even more strains of Borrelia globally. So this is a global threat that leaves tens of thousands of Americans every year and countless around the world chronically disabled. Now, I'm happy to go into kind of my symptoms at their worst, my symptoms now. If you'd like. Yeah, please do. What's important to understand is that um, we'll talk just about, let's say, Lyme disease and Borrelia burgdorferi, because again, that's the one that we talk about the most, um, the ones that we have the most data on. But I don't want that to you guys to for that to be the exclusion of other strains of Borrelia or other bacteria, viruses, and parasites, because I call ticks um, nature's dirty hypodermic needle for a reason. If you get a tick bite, and let's say it's carrying Borrelia burgdorferi, and if that tick is able to, to transmit that pathogen to you through that bite, um, you can get a multitude of, of symptoms. Um, a lot of the ones that people talk about are the bullseye rash. We've heard about the target rash, the bullseye rash. It's important that people understand a lot of the myths surrounding that. Um, Peer-reviewed scientific literature shows that only about 50 to 60% of people who get Lyme disease get a rash. And of those that do get a rash, it doesn't always look like a bullseye. That rash can come in a lot of different shapes and forms and sizes. And so that's one of those myths that we kind of got, got to work around. If you do indeed get, you know, the stars align and you're quote unquote lucky enough to get the mm -hmm. bullseye rash, that is good enough for a clinical diagnosis. No testing is needed. Beat feet to your doctor and get those antibiotics. Um, but what can happen is if we are not diagnosed and treated in a timely fashion, which is really as soon as possible after that pathogen is transmitted mm -hmm. to you, then the spirochetes like to disseminate. So we go through a stage of early dissemination into late dissemination. These spirochetes are like corkscrews. They hang out in the bloodstream for a little bit, and then they say, I'm bored here, <laughs> and they start corkscrewing out into tissues and tendon, um, et cetera, where it can cause a lot of long-term problems. Um, acute Lyme disease usually presents as like a feeling of having the flu, usually in the summer season. We know there's no mm -hmm. flu in the summer. Um, keep in mind, a lot of COVID-19 symptoms overlap with Lyme disease symptoms. Um, so there's going to be fever, um, malaise, fatigue, joint pain, and muscle pain. Um, as the Lyme spirochete moves into that early disseminated phase, passing about four weeks post-pathogen um, post transmittal, you're going to start seeing more of that arthritic pain, severe joint pain and swelling. And then as it starts moving into late disseminated, which some people will call uh, late Lyme disease, neurological Lyme disease, neuroborreliosis, um, that's when you can start having the very scary neurological manifestations, which can include um, symptoms that mimic things like MS, fibromyalgia, mm -hmm. chronic fatigue syndrome. For example, 
Um, I had a hard time reading and writing. I still do. Um, I, it, it, my very worst, my symptom list was 63 long covering every single system in my body. Um, I had a balance deficit, so I couldn't walk safely. I couldn't read or write. I had word finding and speaking problems. I was stuttering. Um, I had coordination problems. So I was dropping things with my right hand, dragging my right leg. And this whole time, you know, most doctors, unfortunately, are not given the tools, the resources, and the education to think late stage Lyme. Um, and so, unfortunately, I received, let's see, I saw more than 24 doctors across eight specialties. I received three misdiagnoses over a four-year period before I was accurately diagnosed. Um, so I finally got accurately diagnosed and, and received treatment. The problem is if, if you're not treated in the early phases, the oral antibiotics don't work. So I ended up having a PICC line in IV antibiotics, which, you know, comes with its own risks. Um, and that's a cost-benefit analysis that should be had between a doctor and a patient using informed consent. Um, but, you know, then you're having, you know, to do an IV. I did an IV uh, for three months, and then I did several more months of different oral antibiotics and antiparasitics in order to get where I am today. Um, I still struggle to read and write. I still have a balance deficit. Um, I have executive cognitive dysfunction, chronic encephalopathy, and I also um, have very severe issues with my autonomic nervous system. Um, those are just the top few that I still live with every day. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing uh, with us about your condition. I think oftentimes, at least I hear with the, uh, you know, tick-borne disease or Lyme disease or any, I mean, uh, disease like Lyme disease, oftentimes is, it takes a long time to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you identify early, there's, you know, their intervention works. Well, what, what's hard to your point is, you know, if we can get it diagnosed early and thoroughly treated early, the patient outcomes are very, very good. To your point, there's a lot of people who get Lyme disease and the numbers are a, a bit across the spectrum and we do need more research. But, you know, I mean, if half the people who get Lyme disease is, is one of the, the statistics that's out there, never even see a tick. Mm -hmm. And so if you go to your doctor with nondescript symptoms, they're going to think you just have the flu. Go home and rest. Well, while you do that for a few weeks and the symptoms don't go away, the spirochetes have all of this time to disseminate. And now that treatment becomes more difficult. And now that treatment may not lead to a cure. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that we need is more education and awareness in frontline medical providers and the general public writ large to consider things like Lyme disease and tick-borne illness when they have these kind of nondescript symptoms that come on. I mean, every year we take our animals to the veterinarian and every year the vets do this wonderful tick-borne illness panel on them. If you want to know about tick-borne diseases and how bad it can be, talk to a veterinarian. We haven't been able to translate those lessons and that sense of urgency over to human medicine yet, but I applaud veterinary medicine every single day. Why is it that when I go in for my annual physical that we're not talking about tick-borne illness? You know, why is it that we're not testing people, you know, for things uh, like Lyme disease? That's um, really interesting because yeah. I think oftentimes we hear, I mean, totally anecdotal like jokes that, you know, the vets are kind of not, you know, they're not doctor, they're animal doctors. <laughs> and so it's interesting how, uh, how the connection that we can learn so much from a vet. Mm -hmm. 
This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. And maybe this is a good segue for us to talk about your work now as a patient advocacy and what you're trying to achieve and what kind of work that you're doing to get to where you need to be. Well, thank, thank you for asking that. You know, a lot of people say, hey, Nicole, I'm, I'm so sorry you lost your career. I'm so sorry, you know, you can't fly aircraft anymore. Um, but I'm not sorry because I think I'm in a, a much better place to make a difference for people on a larger scale, more quickly, with even more meaning than if I had stayed in the military. And that may sound shocking to people. I used to think my legacy was going to be that I served in the Air Force and I was an officer and that I, you know, protected my nation during war and, you know, that I was a fighter pilot. That's my legacy. And I now realize that that 21 plus years as a fighter pilot gave me the characteristic skills and traits I needed to survive my illness to advocate for myself to finally get a good diagnosis and treatment, and to now give voice to the voiceless. Um, There is unnecessary controversy surrounding Lyme disease, as you know. And there is a myth that um, Lyme disease is easy to diagnose and easy to cure. And that's not always the truth or necessarily true. This idea of chronic Lyme disease or that Lyme disease can persist post-treatment is 100% true. And as I started digging into the actual science and uh, people, you know, sometimes will be like, well, you don't have a degree in that. And my reminder is that my PhD stands for patient has disease. (laughs) Uh, My experience is worth something, but I have delved in the last nine years that I've lived in this patient space um, and gotten pretty darn smart on the science um, because I have surrounded myself with the smart people, the people who are the scientists, the researchers, the clinicians at academic institutions like yours, you know, who are making a difference. Um, and I, I want to give a shout out really quickly. You know, one of the people our patient community works with is actually at UCSF, Dr. Charles Chu. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. He is not only a, a leading researcher looking at some novel diagnostics and stuff, but what makes him unique in this space is he doesn't get down into the controversy of it. He's looking at the science and he partners with us patients and those of us in the patient community, right, to make this actual patient-centered research. And we need more Dr. Chews, right, from UCSF. That's that's what we need. So there's a a quick shout out. Um, But what I do now is I sit on the Dean Center for Tick-Borne Illness uh, as a patient uh, advisor. Uh, They're part of the Massachusetts General Hospital System that saved my life. Um, I also have scored research grants for the last few years on the Congressionally Directed Medical Research Program, Tick-Borne Diseases Panel, which is how I get smart on the science. Mm -hmm. And it also gives me hope because as a patient, when I read these grants, there are some seriously smart people out there who care, who are trying to bridge the gaps in science. And I applaud it. Um, The CDMRP program is unique in all of the government. It's the only place where tick-borne illness patients and caregivers have an equal say and an equal vote on where grant money goes. 
Um, hint, hint, NIH needs to change um, and be more patient-centered and inclusive when they do this. Uh, I'm also on the board of the Live Lyme Foundation, um, and we provide a funding for research at academic institutions as well as a funding to help uh, children who need uh, who need more money to pay for extended treatments. Mm-hmm. Remember, 21 days of doxycycline or 14 days of amoxicillin does not cure everyone at all stages of disease. Um, there's a huge need for novel therapeutics in this space. And until science gets there, we fund treatments for children so they can have um, the sanctity of the doctor-patient relationship, have uh, work with their parents for informed consent so that these kids don't lose their childhoods. So those are just a few things. Um, gosh, I mean, the Center for Lyme Action uh, just stood that up. Um, it, it actually is able to lobby Congress. Um, I'm happy to support them. The work they've done, they just got the Kay Hagen Tick Act passed, which afforded $75 million in research, right? I'd love to put another zero on the end of that, but we're making baby steps there. And the last thing to highlight is um, the Department of Health and Human Services Tick-Borne Diseases Working Group, which was established by Congress through the 21st Century CARES Act. Um, I'm on the patient subcommittee there. So, wow, that was a lot of stuff. I have a new target. I'm a fighter pilot on a mission. And what I know is this, our issue of chronic Lyme disease, the issue of needing new diagnostics, the issues of therapeutics is totally solvable. And it is solvable in my lifetime. And I'm going to be part of making that happen. That's great. No, I think uh, we... Um, it's so great to have you to advocate for this disease because I think, you know, I can see the passion and you have a lot of the, oftentimes it takes the resilience, the grit, like, you know, keep pushing it forward in almost like all your experience, like you're saying, being in the military, being part of the White House, it kind of informed you on how to work with the policymaker to support this effort that you're doing. You know, and I, I, I think what's interesting is, again, I said that this space is unnecessarily controversial. I mean, um, let's take a look right now with what's going on with COVID long haulers who have my utmost empathy and support. They need all the help that they can get. And I think one of the things that through their suffering, unfortunately, through their suffering, we're learning, I think, as a, as a, as a country and as a globe, that these post-infectious you know, symptoms are very, very real. Um, And so a lot of the light that is being shined on them rightfully, uh, I hope will translate to a lot of these other post-infectious things like chronic Lyme disease, Um, like does does post-infection play into ME-CFS or PANS pandas with children. I'm hoping that a lot of that, um, you know, translates and we start looking at it because the controversy um, surrounding Lyme only, only helps, right, prolong the suffering. It's not solving anything except stigmatizing patients who are already down and out. Um, And so what we need is more Dr. Chu's, more researchers and scientists who include patients and caregivers and their lived experience, you know, when they create these grants, when they come up with these research ideas, when they have these surveys, there's, trust me, hundreds of thousands of us in the United States that will raise our hand to help any researcher out there that wants it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you brought an interesting point also, like, you know, to focus on the patient, but also the caregiver yes. and that living with family member with a chronic condition that can be challenging. Cause I think oftentimes, I mean, it's, it's good to find a treatment for the patient, 
but in the meantime, there's a lot of uh, way of how can you bring more support. Yep. Chronic illness, invisible illness, chronic Lyme disease impacts entire families emotionally, mentally, um, financially. Uh, families fall apart and are fractured. People in our community file bankruptcy just to pay for treatment because we know that the standard antibiotics does not cure everyone at all stages of disease. Right. But the CDC and the IDSA have yet to get on board with that. And that would be a podcast for another time. Yeah. But in the meantime, people are suffering. Uh, families get their divorces happen. Um, children are taken away by child protective services. Um, <laughs> bankruptcies are filed. And to be honest, and there have been studies done on this, this is published peer-reviewed literature, the number one cause of death in the chronic Lyme disease community is suicide. Yeah. Suicide from financial issues because insurance doesn't cover it or from the what is we often describe as the term gaslighting and stigma that patients are under. And that's unacceptable in any kind of civilized society. Yeah. So is that part of your advocacy work to inform the general public? Because I think oftentimes uh, when patients suffer, they suffer alone because the community don't really understand and then somehow impose into them what they think what happened. Yeah, 100%. Um, those of us that are doing advocacy work, of which there are so many amazing people, amazing organizations. I'm just one little, one little piece in this wheel and happy to be rowing in the same direction as everybody else. But for those of us that have regained a quality of life worth living, because I'm not 100%, I'm 70% of who I used to be, maybe 60 on a bad day. Um, those of us who have regained it, we've lived the depth. We know what it's like and we can't live with ourselves unless we give voice to the voiceless. Remember, people with chronic Lyme and late stage Lyme disease are often neurocognitively impaired. They cannot speak for themselves, literally, write for themselves, literally, advocate for themselves, literally. Um, and so it's one of those things where you don't, we haven't heard about it in the past because when you're that sick, all you're trying to do every day is survive. And you spend your days trying to convince a doctor that you're sick asking for treatments that aren't there, asking for tests that aren't there, right? And it falls to your to your point, to caregivers. My husband literally was my voice for two years because I couldn't speak for myself. Right. And then you're probably in a foggy state to be thinking clearly. A hundred percent. So now we're taking people that have cognitive dysfunction due to a brain infection and saying, okay, now you need to deal with insurance. You need to deal with a healthcare system that doesn't acknowledge that your illness exists, all while trying to maintain relationships with your family and your kids. And oh, by the way, paying the bills. Good luck with that. Yeah. You know, and, and I go back to this though. This is, the, there are gaps in science that we are going to bridge through proper investing in entrepreneurship, partnering with academic medicine, and we're going to solve this problem. Yeah, in my lifetime. Yeah, and it's, it, I think there's also an interest as well in the from the health plan side because they see many of their members suffer from chronic infectious, the aftermath of infectious disease, mm -hmm. and there's you know we need some sort of technology that help patient and their caregiver to cope and to increase their wellness as 100%. they are facing this. 
We've got to take care of people's mental health as they go through this. It's not just something that's transactional, a test or an antibiotic or one appointment with the right specialist. It needs to be wraparound support, the whole person concept. Um, I mean, like I said, the number one cause of death in our community is suicide because the quality of life can get so bad and the gaslighting can get so bad that people take extreme measures and, and we have to stop that. Yeah. And it starts with simply acknowledging that chronic Lyme disease exists mm-hmm. and that treatments don't cure all people. I mean, let's let's go back to the scientific facts. I love science. I have come to, to be <laughs> a little mini scientist these last nine years. You know, the Lyme disease test that's currently out there, the serology test, the two-tier CDC, you know, ELISA Western blot, you know, isn't even useful until four to six weeks post-bite. It takes four to six weeks to build the antibodies to get the test to actually be accurate. So many doctors don't know that. They give tests too early and then Mm -hmm. say it's negative. And now they've condemned a person to a lifetime of chronic illness because we ruled out Lyme when Mm -hmm. we really didn't. Guess what happens at four to six weeks with those spirochetes? You think they're in the bloodstream anymore? You think they're easily taken care of by oral antibiotics? They're not because they've started to disseminate. So we have a test that doesn't even align with the known treatments right now, you know, and fast forward, right, to knowing that these tests, even when they are given in the right phase, four to six weeks, right, so the immune system has built the antibodies for the test to be positive, you can look, there's peer-reviewed literature out there, please, to the listeners, go look it up yourselves. I mean, some of them even say it misses, it only captures 50 to 60% of people who are positive to Lyme. Right. Oh, by the way, there's peer-reviewed literature that proves seronegative Lyme disease exists. Mm-hmm. We need novel diagnostics now. And those diagnostics need to be a point of care, direct detect, not, not immune right antibodies, a point mm-hmm. of care, direct detect assay for all tick-borne illnesses. Mm-hmm. Eh, we didn't even talk about the other strains of Borrelia, did we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe the first step, like you're saying, uh, have many of these people talk to the vet to figure it out. A hundred percent. I say this every time I have an opportunity to speak to to people in federal agencies, um, at any of our nonprofits, academic institutions, anytime you know that that we're talking, um, that I'm out there doing advocacy work, we bring this up. Our community. I mean, there is a lot to be learned from veterinary medicine. Veterinarians don't take tick-borne illness as as some sort of easy to diagnose, easy to treat. They know better. And veterinarians also know that ticks carry a heck of a lot more than just Borrelia burgdorferi. Right. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that's uh, that's one of the messages now. I'm like, learn from the vet. Yes. I know we are short on time. So maybe a uh, quick three lesson learned as you are trying to, what the challenges in trying to bring this advocacy and try to achieve what you want to achieve. So uh, difficulties in kind of that we're working on right now is just opening up communication. Uh, We have been entrenched in an unnecessary controversy um, for decades over whether or not chronic Lyme disease exists to the point that the two different opposing viewpoints can't even come to the table and talk. The only way change is going to happen is if Egos are put to the side, and we realize that science is always evolving, 
and that we open our, our hearts and minds to the patient and caregiver lived experience. That has been like the single greatest obstacle. The second greatest obstacle, I think, is that there's not a sense of urgency amongst um, the, at least the American public to care about tick-borne illnesses. Um, we were making some progress, and then understandably, COVID-19 came along, uh, which hopefully is reinforcing our point, right, of these One Health initiatives that there are, you know, zoonotic diseases out there and we need to care. Because let's be honest, I worked in the government for 20 plus years, including in the White House. Unless the American public says that there's a sense of urgency, Congress will not make it a priority and then it will never be funded. So advocacy groups have a vital role to play there. And patients like me sharing our story and platforms like yours affording us the opportunity to raise, you know, that awareness. And then the third is always going to be funding. Um, it is always hard to get federal funding, as you know. Um, with that said, I want to highlight the beauty of philanthropic funding and private investment. The major advances that have been made in tick-borne illness over the last five to 10 years have come solely from philanthropic and private investment. And so we need to do that alongside of government funding, um, not, not exclusive of each other, but together. Yeah, it looks like, the, I mean, there's a lot of work ahead that still need to be done, but I think you are the great champion uh, to make help make things happen. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And again, there is an entire community of tick-borne illness patient advocates and Lyme disease advocates out there that are making it happen. So I'm happy to um, represent them today and more importantly, to give voice to the voiceless, um, the chronic Lyme disease patients who can't speak right now because they literally um, are bedridden and housebound. So this is for them. Uh, thanks to everybody who is listening. And if anyone wants to reach out to me and continue the conversation, um, I am on social media and I'd be happy to do so. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Nico. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, our content writer, Kelly Muscat, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.